Welcome to Vincent Price's Life. Good evening, LB. Good evening, Andrew. Gosh, it's cold. It's a little bit chilly here in South Texas. Yeah, it's cold, technically. <laughs> Yesterday it was 90 degrees. Today it's 46 degrees. And dropping. What the heck? It's been this way for like a week, off and on. Yeah. Very bipolar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fickle. Screwy weather. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about another cold movie since it's December. Right. Last one, we talked about one that was cold and ghosty. This one isn't ghosty at all. It's a bit spooky. Creepy. Eerie. Yeah. But not ghosty. There is a spirit involved. Is there? Well, we'll discuss that. What? It's the movie Ravenous. In the mountains of California, a legend has awakened. We have four missing soldiers, Captain, and no bodies. And an evil... How do you stop it? You don't. ...is unleashed. Man eats the flesh of another. He absorbs the other man's strength. He's dead, soldier. Now let's move. L.A. Confidential's Guy Pierce. He killed them all. Tree spotting Robert Carlyle. We need others. There's no turning back now. There's not courage to resist me. Courage to accept me. Screams David Arquette. Ah! It's a <laughs> Directed by Antuna Bird. Get away from me! Ravenous. Rated R. So this film was made in 1999. Yeah, indeed it was. It's a movie that I don't remember from the 90s. Now, I watched a lot of movies in the 90s. Well, we just heard... The trailer. Now, this is some of the worst marketing I've ever seen. <laughs> and you've heard it. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Boogeyman by Rob Zombie was used extensively in various trailers for this film. Be it a long trailer, a short trailer for TV. I'm your boogeyman. Because <laughs> there is a sort of a boogeyman theme throughout this. But it's not boogeyman in your dreams, haunts your dreams sort of thing. It's just like beware of the bad guy kind of yeah. thing. So they use that and they also feature David Arquette, who's brilliant, but they feature him because this is the late 90s. Mm -hmm. And they want to push it to the teens who love Scream and Scream 2. Right. So they're pushing it by going, David Arquette. But cutie David Arquette. He's in it, but it's not his movie. No, 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 it's not. <laughs> it's just featuring, you know? Yeah. The movie belongs to two stars that have gone on to do great things and, and strange things. Mm -hmm. They are Guy Pierce. I play dead. And Robert Carlyle. My name's Colhoun. F.W. Colhoun, servant of God. Mm -hmm. Guy Pierce had, I think, just done L.A. Confidential. Yeah, that was a big hit. Yeah, so he was an up-and-coming guy. Mm-hmm. Guy. Ha-ha. <laughs> Ha-ha. Huh. Pierce. And Robert Carlyle, he was famous. Train spotting and the full Monty. So, Elvin, tell me what the movie Ravenous is about. Well, it takes place during the Mexican-American War, and Guy Pierce is a very cowardly soldier. His battalion gets shot up, and he pretends to be dead. Yeah. So the Mexicans throw him on a cart with the rest of the dead bodies, and he's just laying there pretending. My commanding officers have shot off head in my face. There's blood running down my throat. So how did you take the command post? Something, something had changed. And somehow he gains some sort of strength, gets up out of the cart, attacks the entire Mexican crew. He takes over the fort and 
wins that battle for America. Yeah. So he gets promoted to being captain because of uh, his heroism, but his commanding officer figures out that he was actually being a coward, so... And the heroism was a fluke. Right. So he sends him off, basically in exile, to this very remote little fort in the Sierra Nevadas. Now, in the fort, you have the commander, who's just a, a well-read guy who just spends his time reading and cracking walnuts. Yep. We you have only a skeleton company that consists of Private Toffler, who's our personal emissary from the Lord. Major Knox, who never met a bottle he didn't like. <laughs> Private Reich, he's our soldier. <laughs> I'd steer clear of him. And Martha, you've met. Bet you didn't get a word out of her. And uh, George, her brother. They're both locals. He sort of came with the place. <laughs> and then there's uh, Private Cleves. The overmedicated Private Cleves. And you and I make eight. So why is this a spooky, scary story? Like, we just, the guy's exiled to this place. What's the big deal? Well, you haven't talked about Robert Carlyle yet. Oh, no, I haven't. Calhoun. Uh-huh. This has something in common with the Alfred Packer story. That's true. In fact, it was a bit inspired by the Alfred Packer story. Mm-hmm. If none of you recall, Alfred Packer is a Colorado folk tale, a legend, a story that was turned into a musical by Trey Parker and Matt Stone because it's such an influential legend in Colorado. And uh, this guy, it's like the Donner Party story. Cannibalism happened because they were snowed in in mm-hmm. a cave. Mm-hmm. So basically the same bones here. Calhoun stumbles into their fortress. Calhoun is an emaciated man who he and his party, much like the Donner Party, were miles out, waylaid in a snowstorm for months upon months upon months. He tells mm-hmm. this harrowing story about how they had to eat the horses and then the shoe leather and then eventually each other. And it's very intense and very sad and tragic how he's telling the tale. And then he has to take them to the cave where all of this went down. In the meantime, Boyd, Guy Pierce, is completely suspicious of this guy. And we are not really sure why. This movie does a really great job of being ominous at almost every turn. And funny. Mm-hmm. So there's a tone thing that's always happening. But as far as narrative goes, we're not sure why he's suspicious of this traveler but soon he does find out as well as the rest of the men when they go to the cave to investigate what had happened to Calhoun's party. Now we're not going to spoil the entire movie for you because we think you should watch this movie. Absolutely. However we will say I mean you can kind of pick up what's going on in this story especially if you're like us you're into creepy tales kind of sounds like this could be a Wendigo story huh? Yeah Wendigo. That's because it is a Wendigo story. Or is it the tale of the Wendigo is told to us, or the myth, but is it supernatural? Right. You know, there's an actual condition. It's called Wendigo psychosis, and it's psychosomatic. It's pretty culturally specific to Native Americans. The story takes place during the Mexican-American War, which was the late 1840s, which was a time where America was very obsessed with the idea of manifest destiny. Right. Westward expansion, acquisition of land. California was a very valuable commodity. Gold! Yeah, gold, other
other natural resources as well. Got good growing land. Right, agriculture. Uh huh. Also, the fact that it's the Pacific Coast. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, uh, that's very valuable to lots of countries, including England and France. And so, America was really, really concerned about snatching it up and getting it from Mexico. What's interesting to me about the Mexican-American War, though, is it's actually the precursor to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. It had a lot to do with slavery. Like the slave states were the ones who wanted the expansion, who wanted Manifest Destiny, because they were afraid as more northern states were developing, they wouldn't be able to keep the slavery alive. So they expand westward. And the fort in this movie is actually a big passageway. Like, you know, St. Louis is the gateway to the west. Yeah, it's a potential boom town. Right, right, right. This is a place where everybody has to come through. And that plays a part later in the story. Yeah. But what was I talking about? I was talking about Wendigos. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what's relevant about the time period is that during this time, Native Americans had a big belief in the spirit of the Wendigo. What is this Wendigo? I know, but you tell the rest of them that may not know, them being the listeners. Well, it's a monster that will possess you and make you want to eat your fellow humans. How does this monster manifest in the first place? By eating human flesh. So any possible cannibal is a Wendigo. According to the lore, you eat the human, you gain the human's power. And uh, you just start craving it more and more. And more. Yes. But the Wendigo psychosis. Now, during this time period, Native American tribes were very isolated. They didn't really have the resources that were set up by the trading posts and and things like that during the Western expansion. While their homes are snowed in, they don't have access to adequate food sources. Sometimes they go a little crazy. Well, you do. Your mind starts going, so you, you go into this survival mode and you have to eat. Right. We know this through various things that have happened. Like the story about the rugby team that crashed in the Andes. Mm -hmm. They had to eat or else they were going to go mad and then die. Right. They had actual physical symptoms too. Things like nausea and vomiting. Also depression, loss of appetite, distaste for regular food, and periods of stupor. They became very paranoid because of this Wendigo legend, like the, the supernatural legend. They really became obsessed with thinking that this spirit was possessed them and was controlling them, which could lead to both homicidal or even suicidal tendencies. Now, it's also alleged that these people would experience hallucinations to the point of seeing the people around them turn into food. <laughs> so, yeah. like a cartoon. Yeah, like my favorite. There's that Bugs Bunny cartoon where the the two guys are trapped on the island and they look at each other and like one of them's a hamburger and the other one's a hot dog. Ah. And along with the paranoia came this. Fear of becoming a cannibal because they, they know that it's wrong. That's part of the Wendigo legend, actually. It's a warning against cannibalism. Yeah, it's a folk warning against yeah. cannibalism. There's tons of this stuff. Now, when you get into cannibalism, there are tribes that are even today not Native American, but other third world places, mm-hmm. possibly the Amazon, Papua New Guinea. They still mm-hmm. have cannibals. But the thing is, if you cannibalize too much, which they do, and especially if you eat your kin, something happens to your brain. You get kind of holes in your brain. It's holes, a, it's a, huh? yes, it's kind of like mad cow disease, but for hmm. people, mad people disease. And yes, it causes you to go bonker crazy. Yeah. So this is probably something that they have experienced throughout the centuries. And they've come up with this good tale to say, don't eat people because this will happen. Right. But they don't have like, you know, the scientific way of right, saying, right, exactly. like, holes in your brain, it'll cause you to go crazy because of that. Right. And then, so it's the folk tale. 
Yep. So they would, uh, in this fear, in this paranoia, they would sometimes ask to be banished from their tribes because they were so worried. Now, Andrew, I'm going to correct you just a little bit from earlier. Now, the spirit of the Wendigo is an influencer. It's like that little devil on your shoulder whispering in your ear. Hey, hey, do you want to, why don't you, do, do you want to, do you want to eat Carl? No, I don't want to eat Carl. Go on, eat Carl. No, I don't want to. Eat Carl now. So then you're saying after he does finally eat, the manifestation of the Wendigo does take over? Yeah, and then he turn into a monster. So the fear of turning into the Wendigo was so fierce that people who felt the influence would ask to be banished from the tribe. So those who were just really, really hungry because of starvation were like, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to eat everybody here if I don't get kicked out. Yeah. Kick me out already. Right. But you know, there's a cure to being a Wendigo after it's manifested inside of you. What is that? Going vegan? (laughs) No. The cure is hot grease. How? (laughs) Is this like being tarred and feathered like the original hot No, 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 no. uh, What? No. Okay, so you would be spoon-fed hot bear fat or deer fat or fish oil because the Wendigo is said to have a piece of ice inside of them. Hmm. And the hot grease will melt that ice. Now, there's a story about a Cree woman Mm -hmm. who tried to eat her husband and her children. I guess she was already a Wendigo because they fed her bear grease and afterwards she vomited up ice. Huh, okay. Yeah, like that's possible. I wonder the science behind that. (laughs) Prove it. I need photo documentations, (laughs) photo, video. Right, that's just a story. But there was a kind of famous Wendigo hunter. His name was Jack Fiddler. I love the name Jack Fiddler. I know. it's Jack Fiddler, Wendigo hunter is like prime picking for some awesome fiction. Yeah, I agree. He got the name Fiddler from hanging outside one of the trading posts and carving fiddles. Huh. So. Okay. That's how he got his white person name. Did he? team up with Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter? (laughs) Probably. That would be great. All these crossovers. (laughs) No, 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 that didn't happen. Because Jack Fiddler, he was the guy who everyone in the tribe would call if they suspected a Wendigo or if they needed someone to cure a Wendigo or if the curing of the Wendigo didn't quite go as planned and it was kind of a lost cause. He was the specialist. Yeah, he'd come in and he'd be the the Jack Borkian of of the area. So the white settlers didn't quite, you know, agree. Well, there's culture clash for one. Yeah. And then there's like, I refuse because white people are notorious for this. Even today, I refuse to accept your culture and, and even try to understand it. Yeah. Because you're different than me. Yeah, but they saw it as murder, so they arrested Jack Fiddler and put him on trial, and he was going to be executed. This was in 1907. But he escaped and hung himself because he thought that was more noble than being executed. By the white man. Yeah. Well, that's a bummer ending. Dang. Yeah. Well, this movie, Ravenous, also has a bummer ending. I think it's a wholly appropriate ending, but kind of a downer. Yeah, it has a somber feel to it. Yeah, but it's totally, it's, it's a perfect end cap to it, though. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, after all the mayhem starts, and it does, in a way, do a slasher sort of thing, but it kind of happens 
rather rapidly as opposed to people being hunted off Jason style. There's a lot mm -hmm. of cat and mouse at certain points. Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening is the reason why Boyd is suspicious in the first place is that he vibes yeah. what's going on. He's got a, just basically a sixth sense about it because like this is exactly what happened to me as far as like the energy that this guy's put on, putting off. He's not really this desperate guy. There's some ruse that's going on. And he's right. There's so much cool about that scene when Calhoun is telling his story. I mean, it's very intense. The camera's focused on Calhoun telling the story. But then it cuts around to the... Reaction shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boyd, very suspicious, like you said. He's like... It's just subtly performed, Yeah, though. yeah. It's he, perfect. Boyd is... He's got his ears up, kind of. You know, like if he was if he was a dog, he'd be like, oh, attention. But concentrating attention. Yeah. Side eye, kind of. Yeah, like I'm not so sure about yeah. this guy. There's that, and there's also the Native American scout. His name is George. Yeah. He knows what's up. Yeah, George is like, oh, wait. And actually, before they go out on the expedition to find the cave where Calhoun is said to have held out for the winter, George is like, Windigo. 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 Tanu liu niu mushka lolishke. Ojibwe tanu dahamado glogashli. It's an old Indian myth from the north. Windigo. Mushka ki iglo. Tanu temlu. A man eats another's flesh. Uh, it's usually an enemy. Tanu i uri tanu dungahamu khagi. And he um, takes, uh, steals his strength, essence, his spirit. And um, and his hunger becomes craven, insatiable. And the more he eats, the stronger he becomes. Georgia, people don't still do that, do they? So that scene is really cool. And you know, you don't you don't quite pick up on it the first time you watch it. Like you just think, "Oh, maybe uh, they're they're just listening to the story." Right. You know, they're they're being uh, I don't know, enthralled, I guess. Yeah. And it's really a good bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, it is. The mayhem happens, everybody gets uh, sort of either killed or separated, and Boyd is uh, eventually stuck in a hole with a dead man yeah. hiding from mm -hmm. the bad guy, Calhoun, because yeah. he is the bad guy. Mm -hmm. He eventually makes it back to Fort after he had a broken leg, he had to eat, and he healed rather quickly. In the meantime, the army sends out another commander, and this time... The commander is a man named Colonel Ives. Who happens to be the same name from Calhoun's story earlier. Yeah, who apparently went mad and ate everybody. Twists and turns abound. There's a big face-off. Things happen. It gets pretty bloody. Yes. Now, Roger Ebert said something about this movie being a three out of four stars. It's pretty good, except it devolves into gore. There's not a lot of gore. No, not really. It's If you consider blood being gore, then yes. Well, maybe for the average person, there's a lot of gore. There's not a lot of entrails. I mean, they do show prep of meat. They do show cooking. <laughs> that can you be You know gory. what I think, I think is gorier than, than the end of the film is the, the steak that... At uh, the um, very beginning, yeah, yes. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's like the reward dinner for... Guy is a vegetarian. Oh, yeah. And he that's ate right. it. That's right. Well, I think he sped it out. Oh, well, he... He ate it enough to get the juices. Right. The steak is disgusting. It's mm. too rare for my taste. <laughs> and it's disgusting. And you can see everybody eating. And then finally he takes a bite. And it's just the juiciest, sloppiest, disgustingest. There's a lot of gristle involved. Yeah. It's so gross. All right. So uh, what else makes this movie cool? Well, the performances, for one, they're all spot on. And they're all perfect. 
Every single one of them. The the layering of the story. It's got a ton of depth, this story. There's a lot going on, and it's all beneath the surface. Above the surface, you have the things that you need for a scary story like this to happen. There's a lot of stuff that we can't relate to because of the time period, so we just are yeah, given this. Yeah, yeah. We can't relate to it. Cowboys, we don't. We only know movie cowboys. We only right. know TV cowboys. Mm-hmm. We don't know this time period, really. So we accept it because it's sort of mythology to us, and we're like, fine. But it's the character work that we do relate to. <laughs> We've all been hungry. That's true. We've all, in some various form, self-medicated, be it whatever our emotional salve that we put on, or actually imbibing in alcohol or drugs, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things that this movie has to relate to, and it also has like the clear-headed characters, and we are the people who are looking into the story, pretty clear-headed. So we relate to those characters. Anyway, there's just so much going on in this film that I think makes it just so rewarding time after time watching it we knew that a lot of people or reviewers anyway had considered this film satire the last time we watched it we were talking about how how is this satire because it doesn't seem like satire exactly it just seems like there's a lot of elements to this film there's comedy there's horror there's dark humor it's the blackest pitch of comedy it's not a mean-spirited comedy no there's always it's strange because i think of a mean-spirited black comedy as something like Very Bad Things. I cannot stand that movie. It is mean-spirited. There's not a shred of joy, a glint of enjoyment in anybody's eyes. It's just dark subject matter and bad people. You're not rooting for whomever. It's everybody's terrible. Now, this movie has you're rooting for a good guy type of guy, (laughs) Pierce, to Mm -hmm. reprise that joke. Yeah. But you do have a sense of humor about everything, about how it's presented and stuff. And so it's darkly humorous. But what makes it satire? When you think of satire, you think of Dr. Strangelove or something like that. That's one of my favorite movies. That's like a really smart Mad Magazine comic. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. So that's what you think of as satire. Yeah, so this film doesn't really feel like satire to us. And we kind of struggled to think about why it could be considered a satire. Now, you mentioned a minute ago about how we have no relation to this time period. Like, we don't really know what's going on with it. And that has something to do with our confusion, I think. Yes, but the point where I think the satire comes to full fruition is the very last scene. Oh, yeah? Yes. The general who exiled him arrives at the fort and sees a pot of stew cooking, sniffs it, and is very interested. Because the pot of stew has... It's a people stew. Yeah. So that's where I think the satire really is. Also, there's a a bit of ignorance in the military's perspective on things. It's very subtle. The satire throughout this is very subtle. Like the the G.I. Joe action figure soldier guy is satire straight up. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was thinking about, again, Manifest Destiny. The thing that Americans want more than anything is more. We want more. More. Give us more. We're very rarely minimalist in how we do anything. The insatiableness of these characters, of of Calhoun and uh, Jeffrey Jones's character, they just want more. They want to live to the fullest. So they sacrifice the things that make them good in order to get more. 
So, the satire isn't just on a surface thing about the old military or the way that the old military is like right. I mean, immovable it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. in its stances on things, but it is actually a symbolic satire on human nature, I on think American so. nature. I really think so. All right, I'll bite. Okay. Don't bite me. Okay. Don't be a Wendigo. I won't. Okay. I'm not that hungry. I don't look like a hot dog. Nope. So this movie's pretty smart, is what I'm saying. I think you can agree with that. Absolutely. And it's a shame that critical reception of this film, when it came out, was really low. It now, was like a flat line in the yeah, middle. It was just like, kind of like people either ugh. liked it or hated it. Right. And, you know, Ebert I always put a lot of uh, clout in what Ebert says, because I think he's pretty even-headed on most things. Yeah, there's some things that he's stupid about. And he wrote a schlocky exploitation film and then later went on to bash any exploitation film that came <laughs> along, you know? so I, I mean, mean, yeah, I mean, that's fine. But, you know, he tended to um, stick up for the little guy. Sure. So I'm glad that he gave it a pretty decent review. Yeah. Now, this has a a troubled production oh there was two directors one director didn't even start shooting it seemed so far as i've understood he didn't even start shooting but Hmm. a week before heading to production he handed in a bunch more storyboards and was like i want to do this and Mm -hmm. they were like that's gonna add two more weeks to shooting and we don't want it oh that's a big deal in the film industry so they gave him one week and he was like Uh, okay but when they Gave him one week. He was micromanaged heavily. So he was like, forget this man. And he left. (laughs) I don't even know the guy's name and he hasn't gone on to make any great movies ever since. Hmm. That's why we don't know his name. And that's why I don't want to bother saying it. And I don't remember it. (laughs) Okay. But Robert Carlyle had worked with a previous director many times. Two movies at least. One called Priest, another one called Face. This director is named Antonia Bird. And he called the producers and was like, Antonia can do it. They got Antonia on the job and they shot. And this movie is a testament to how great she is as a director. But she hadn't done horror movies really, No, right? she had done, look, Priest is mm-hmm. about a gay priest. Face is a gritty crime drama, Brit style sort of mob movie. Oh, okay. And she had done other movies too. So she's heavily drama influenced. Uh-huh. But she's nuanced with all the character work and all this stuff in this movie. Mm-hmm. That's a testament to her. Visually, mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff, sure, was already in production of the, we're going to shoot this here and we're going to shoot this there. But a lot of this stuff, in, in particular, the big fight scene at the end was done by her. Mm-hmm. And the two actors. Not a stunt crew, not a big thing, and it was just them doing it. Like when they're rolling around the bear yeah. trap and yeah, yeah. having meat cleavers and Yeah, that all was that all their own and that was a real meat cleaver. What? <laughs> yeah, that was a real sharp meat cleaver. That thing's huge. So yeah, a big old piece of iron. Sharp. Oh geez. So this movie is a testament to her skill as a director. Sadly, she's no longer with us. She died a few years ago and I remember hearing about it, but then I forgot. And then looking more into this film, I learned that again. I was totally bummed. Right? Because she never got her director's cut. No, she never got her director's cut. Which, if I don't know if a director's cut would have been better than this. Because I love this version of the movie. Well, I think there are some silly things that she wanted to get rid of. Like, there's a quote at the beginning of the film. Oh, right. He that fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. Friedrich Nietzsche. Eat me! Anonymous. 
There's yeah. no reason for that. Quote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like certain little things that, like the the studio wanted to make the film more contemporary, or as evident in the marketing. Right. Again. Exactly. Exactly. This is the the same old story, and it's completely unnecessary for this film, which is a beautiful period piece and with, with bloody, some, with some crazy stuff in it. A beautiful bloody period piece. Yeah. She said she was influenced by uh, Leone. Sergio Leone. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, and it's kind of like a reciprocal cycle of influence because she heard some of the work that Damon was doing with Michael Nyman on the score which reminded her of Sergio Leone oh, and right, so she right. started doing that and those then types of shots and the commentary yeah. they're like wait I thought you did that because of Sergio she's like no I did that because of you and well I was doing that because you reminded me of Sergio oh weird and then that sort of thing oh, okay who's Damon Damon Alburn of the band Blur and the Gorillas and his own side projects and oh. monkey the opera and etc etc so on and so forth dreamy damon I don't know how dreamy he is. <laughs> With his gold tooth. I love it. <laughs> but I, I do dig that guy's work a whole plenty lot. Well, we might as well talk about the score now. Yeah, it's great. You've been hearing bits and pieces as we talk about this. It's weird. Uh, well, you know, I thought that it was all orchestrations and stuff. But according to Damon, he sampled a lot of things and sequenced things. But he sampled actual instruments of the time period to mess around with these compositions. Yeah, let's talk about those instruments. They're folk instruments. Yeah. There's banjo and jaw harp and squeeze box. <laughs> I really wanted to say squeeze box. Well, you did. I did. Yay. Twice. Yay for me. Three times. Squeeze box. <laughs> very traditional instruments used in a very weird, non-traditional way. Yeah. And it's fascinating and haunting and wow, it's effective. He sequenced these instruments with the sampler in a way that I just thought that it wasn't it was these instruments and not a sampler not mm-hmm. space age science fiction technology music <laughs> samplers yeah well he's good at that yeah so and in fact he does some stuff here which is a precursor to the gorillas and I can hear it now that I'm told it's sequenced mm-hmm. and how he uses this strange banjo riff or whatever or breathing or, or the breathing chanting yes yeah, they did that. Um, he actually worked with a, a Native American on as sort of like a, a consultant with him mm. as well on his parts of the score. It's two guys who did the score, Damon Alburn and Michael Nyman. Michael Nyman did the more traditional things because he's a traditional score guy. Mm-hmm. And Damon's, of course, rock and roll musician. <laughs> anyway, there are motifs in the score that are brought out through sounds that actors made in the movie. Oh, uh, yeah, that, like one, that one really cool Jeremy scene. Jeremy Davies, yeah. who, who uh, has this uh, exhale noise of sort of uh, fright. And that informed something in the score mm-hmm. that Damon did. Robert Carlyle does this weird... Rhythmic breathing. Rhythmic, yeah, yeah. When when he's digging in the dirt for the oh, night. God, this is such a freaky scene. Spooked. He's spooking me. It's all the same scene, but those two noises inform parts of the score mm-hmm. that these two actors make. Mm-hmm. It's really inventive ways to do things Just in, as far in, as doing score goes. Incredible performances all around. It's one of my favorite scores that isn't one of those exclusively electronic, Carpenter-esque scores. 
Yeah, I know. You listen to it all the time. Yeah. We have the CD in our car because we're old school. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. Now, the only woman in this story is Martha, George's sister. Right. And she just makes well, it out unscathed. They need a volunteer to go tell the yeah yeah the other battalion right or whatever. Now she has a very important scene towards the end of the film, but mm -hmm. but that's not what I'm getting at. She's just the only female character in this story, and she's quiet. Mm -hmm. She has no in glances. Yep. She has some dialogue, but you as a woman mm -hmm. watching a movie mm -hmm. about an antiquated military with a bunch of dudes and only dudes just about. Mm -hmm. Why do you like this movie? If from my past experience with you, you seem to want to have more women in your stories. Okay, you're right. When I see a film that is especially a military-based film. The more modern it seems, the less you like. It's true. Because a lot of those films just really focus on strategy or they're just cold in a way. And I'm not talking about like, oh, this film has snow in it, so it's cold. No, <laughs> I mean, like, there's nothing about it that really interests me. Now, this film, yeah, I like it because it's a period piece. But also, the characters in it, be they men or be they women, are all interesting. There's more to them than just, Oh, I'm a, a military guy, and, oh, you know, I have a wife, and I have to get back to my wife. Or, like, This guy's been really mean to me. My commanding officer is yelling at me, and feel sorry for me and I need to stick up for myself. Or it's more character based. You care about how they relate to each other, how they interact with each other. It makes it more real, more relatable. Now, the woman in this story, Martha, I'm not going to get too political here, but during this election that we just had in America, Hillary Clinton got a lot of praise for being the kind of woman who could just kind of patiently and gracefully listen to men yell at her or berate her or, you know, just kind of deal with it. And I kind of feel like Martha is also that kind of woman. She's in this situation where all these men, they have their own idiosyncrasies. And she just kind of has to deal with it and keep her head up. She's just kind of living. And it's sort of admirable. Now, she doesn't have to deal with them being sexist towards her. Like, there's not any moment of sexual frustration or creepy glances or there's no harassment happening to her. You get the sense that she's kind of the glue that's keeping this place together. Oh, yeah. She's taking care of them. And she's ignoring their, their stupid crap. Like uh, David Arquette being an idiot or the doctor being a drunk. Or, yeah. You know, like that kind of stuff. She's just like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. And she ends up being the sole survivor of this fort. She does witness the end. Yeah, she knows what's up. Yeah. You see her eyes and she's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I knew that would happen. This is how it ends. That's it. So she's the end cap to this story. Right. Well, pre-end cap to the story because the other end cap is the general and the stew. And that's the lingering question mark at the end of it. Yep. So I love this movie. It's one of my top tens. And I only revisit my top favorites every so often, not mm -hmm. all the time or else. Yeah, you don't want to get burned out. So you though, you've seen it twice. Maybe three times. Maybe three times. What do you think? There's a point in this film where I want it to be over already. <laughs> I know that sounds terrible, but it's true. And I think that is actually part of the diminished returns that 
you're talking about. I know what happens. When I'm watching it, I want it to get to what happens. Okay. You know what I'm saying? But like the, the first time you watch it, it's so engrossing. And I really recommend that everybody watch this film. Yeah, I do too. I do believe it's on Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. It's on Blu-ray in America via Shout Factory. So yeah, you have a few different avenues that you can go down in order to watch this film. So everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Vincent Price's Laugh. Again, we'd like to remind you, please follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook, go to iTunes, subscribe, like, review, do all that stuff because we really need your support. And also you can go to Patreon and support us there if you want, or you can buy some t-shirts from my pal Jemetsko here. Yeah, Patreon, Jemetsko. I guess that's it. We'll see you next year. (gasps) Next year? Yeah, it's a long time from now. Oh my gosh. Good night, everyone. Good night. This podcast is brought to you by Ouch My Ego. Visit OuchMyEgo.com. Come on, eat Carl. I don't look like a hot dog.